Malcolm Honline is vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Fridays for the weekly update here at JM in the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. Good to be back again. Appreciate that. So much to talk about. It's unbelievable. We'll start with this terrible disaster, and it seems like uh, these disasters are following one after another way too quickly. The lone soldier from Ukraine, IDF soldier, who was the victim of yesterday's attack at the Makabim checkpoint. You heard about Kevri Yosef and the ambush of the army vehicle that um, injured four IDF soldiers. And some are writing that terror now in Israel is out of control and that uh, episode after episode are occurring. And it's harder and harder for Israeli intelligence and security to take care of things before they happen. Malcolm, this is a topic you and I have discussed many times. You rightfully have defended the intelligence and security forces. Do you think any differently today? Look, they're facing a very difficult and complex situation. And the internal developments in Israel impact it as well. And it emboldens both the enemies around Israel, but also within Israel. But we should understand that this is not just a domestic dispute or local guy. This is a, a result of activities of Hezbollah and of the Islamic Jihad and others, but particularly Hezbollah, which has expanded its efforts at the insistence of Iran. We see Iran trying to influence the Shiite populations, and not only there, but also in the United States and elsewhere around the world, but particularly in the territories where we have seen the influx of weapons, the providing weapons to criminal gangs to enhance the uh, internecine warfare, that has taken the bulk of lives of, uh, of Arabs. When you hear the numbers, understand that the vast majority of them are not killed in terrorist uh, activities, but in k- killing each other. Yeah. And efforts being made by Israel to stop that as well. But the incitement the uh, uh, that is ongoing, the external influences and the weakness of the Palestinian Authority, that despite the money that they get, the aid that they get, that the police are not present, they're not taking preventative uh, measures by and large. Israel did, and, you know, people ask me then, well, Janine was a failure. No, Janine was not a failure. Just think what it would be like had they not gone into Janine and destroyed six factories and uh, making weapons. And there's, you know, such a, a, a large industry of this where they're doing it in the basement or in some abandoned place. And to be able to keep track of all these places, to be able to go in and, as they're doing almost every night, and carrying out raids to deal with the infrastructure because the PA isn't. And the, the the world has to understand what Israel is facing. These are no longer just police actions. This is They're taking the war inside Israel's uh, borders, and there's no more appropriate time that it's Parsha to recognize when we say that you have to go out to war that the Chumash is telling us, don't fight in your own territory. Once you're fighting a defensive war, if you're fighting within your boundaries and borders, you have to take the war outside, go to your enemy's territory, fight on them, and and extract the price there to protect uh, your, your citizens. And we are seeing now the need for Israel to have to go to the sources of this, and you, you, the northern border, which I'm sure we'll talk about, the, the southern border, uh, all over, but it's tied to the, all the groups that Iran is backing. 
Um, for those who remember the intifadas, the official campaigns, I guess we'd call them, of violence against Israel, is, is, is this any different than those days? You know, when, when we're hearing about terror attacks, rammings, ambushes, stabbings, drive-by shootings on a, you know, on a regular basis, you know, on an average, I don't know, of every 12 to 24 hours, essentially. Are we in an intifada stage right now? I wouldn't say that this is an intifada. I would say it's, it is um, on the road if it's not stopped. And the failure of the PA to, to do anything, to use its forces. Uh, we're seeing now Saudi Arabia introducing uh, the resumption of aid as part of what may be preliminary to the, a package that includes recognition of Israel or some form of, of uh, recognition. But the, the, um, and the dominant forces that have been allowed, these cancers that have been allowed to spread throughout the, their territories and, and their villages and cities without any counter uh, voice and allowing criminal elements to, to begin to exercise control. You see the villas of the leadership and of the, these people and then the poverty of the people ne- next to it. And, of course, that leads to additional resentment. We see it inside Gaza against Hamas. We see it. In the, on the northern border against Hezbollah in Lebanon, public manifestations, which were almost un, unheard of, and uh, certainly against the PA, which enjoys a small minority of support uh, from amongst the people. But unfortunately, there's just no one, there's nobody around whom to rally in the counter voice. And then once in a while, they crack down on opposition, but at the same time, continue to support and make peace possible the continued terrorism against Israel. So the so the only way, not to be too cynical, but the only the only two methods of living comfortably, uh, or at least having financial security in that sector, is either being in the leadership and having the villas that you described, or killing Jews and then you know benefiting from the payments that are coming from Iran or wherever the slate of pay payments are coming from. Well, there are options about what could be done. If the if the West would stop monocoddling uh, coddling the the Palestinian Authority, and uh, and as well as the countries uh, in the countries around them, where you see uh, Iran's infrastructure, whether it's the Houthis, whether it's the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, or the Hamas or Hezbollah, and Hamas in in the northern border or in Syria, where they continue to send weapons and and support. They, they, you know, that in the PA itself, they now have equipment where they're printing the weapons. Israel carried out raid this week, which they found the equipment and uh, printed uh, weapons that uh, that came. Hello? Yeah, you're on. Oh, because I just got a call from you. Oh, that's pretty funny. <laughs> well, you're still live on the air, thank God. Okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe okay. someone in my house is calling you. Who knows? <laughs> a, a, a dual figure. Um, so the the you know you can't isolate the incidents of of what's taking place uh, for, to one particular re, uh, locale or the uh, one particular source. Right. If you don't understand the complexity of the situation, which I think escapes many people in Washington, and you heard it in the comments of these congressional delegations that just visited Israel where they came back and said, we've never understood how complex and how serious the situation is to see how much uh, Hezbollah, the infrastructure that they have 
that they have built, and Iran continues to provide it. And that's why the $6 billion is such a threat, because it's only going to increase their aggressiveness, yeah. to, to, to which will directly impact all of our allies, but particularly Israel. Uh, you make such a good point. They, they don't understand. They think the neighborhood there is the same as here until they go and visit and they see what Israel's facing on a daily basis. By the way, foreign policy-wise, bigger picture-wise, I, I think this is an important foundation for parts of this discussion today, cause I, and I need to understand it, and you'll tell me if my theory's right. So you have this BRICS uh, alliance, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, and now they've invited a number of countries, including Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Egypt, Argentina, Ethiopia to be part of it. Is the reason why there was no large concerted effort to have a group like this for all these decades because without Russia, it would have been impossible to actually form an effective group like this? In other words, it took Russia to really be you know, a pariah now to the rest of the world. I mean, no relationship with the West, uh, certainly with the countries that are you know, pro-Ukraine, etc., and against the Russian aggression. Uh, now it gave Russia the opportunity to actually align with countries like this. Is, is, that, a, is that a good analysis, the, the way foreign policy uh, and the United States' relationship with, with Russia specifically has been over the last few decades? So there have been many efforts over the years to create these kind of groupings. And, you know, some say it's the South versus the North, the, the developed versus the underdeveloped or the emerging powers. Uh, one can't say that India and their participation is disturbing to us uh, and joining the the BRICS group, which is really an anti-American or anti-West uh, uh, association in many respects, but it's the power of China that is driving this to to a large extent, uh, less so Russia, but the coalescence of China and Russia, which, as you remember, we're fighting border wars, we're mm-hmm. enemies, we're we're in conflict. They now are making common cause, and with a third partner, Iran, doing joint exercises, doing other. Uh, activities. It, Iran also joined the Shanghai Cooperation Council at the urging of Russia, but with the support of Russia, but with the obviously the, the decision of China. Uh, so what we're seeing is a reordering of the international order, which is a very serious uh, uh, development, and especially at the time when we see the, the Russians, Chinese, together with the Iranians and others, moving ahead in, let's say, Africa, in South America, China just opened a port in Peru this week, which is going to be or or developing it. Uh, A a square mile is being developed on the port there to be their gateway to to Asia. Uh, A further assertion of of their presence and the the influence that they will have. This is based in Peru, not in Venezuela. Uh, But the the um, the expansion of their activities globally, their activities in Africa, which many of the Africans don't want. They resent it, but they, they don't have a choice. And, you know, you saw that China now controls 95 of the key ports in the world, in all sorts of countries. In Greece, they try to do Haifa, as you know, in the United States, rejected. but they build conditions, they give loans, and then start to collect the loans at high interest rates and build a dependency so they take over the ports. But that's part of their way of asserting their influence globally and now they're building these coalitions. You know, you had the non-allied movement, 
which was, I think it's 77 countries now. You have other, uh, the group, uh, you have the group of 77 plus the group, the non-aligned plus others. So there have been attempts all along. Wasn't there, wasn't there a North Korea led effort a few years ago? I forgot what they called that. Wasn't there a small group of countries that they were, were part of? Um, I don't remember. Well, they're, part of, they're part of the non-aligned movement and uh, supposedly non-aligned. And uh, Iran was the president for for a long time uh, recently. And, you know, the countries often, for instance, the United Nations vote as a bloc and they will follow the lead. Some used to follow the lead of Europe, some uh, the non-aligned votes often as a bloc. But you have these different uh, associations where they try to assert their influence. And uh, sometimes it's against the West, sometimes against uh, uh, for other reasons. And I've talked to many African leaders uh, about it over the years. Um, and you see Latin American countries joining others. This is a very serious development. Do, do countries part, like do, but just one point more? And that is a lot of it is a response to the perception of of the receding American involvement and interest, and that we have focused on, ah. on China. But we're we're missing in too many of the other places. Right. So it's not really we may call it an anti-American group, but to them, like Egypt and India, for instance, I think those are two good examples. They're not really an anti-American group. They're an anti the way America has behaved recently group that they're, they just become undependable. Uh, they be, they're not dependable anymore. Let's put it that way. When it comes to you know having our back in that region of the world, would that be the right way of putting it from their perspective? I think it's the perception of America that when the UAE and Saudi Arabia, right. UAE pulls out of a naval coalition with us because we did not respond. They fell to the attacks on their ships in the in in the Gulf, uh, and you know the the twenty ships were seized by the Iranians. Now we have added uh, Marines to put on the ships, and we 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 put some more equipment into the region, but not enough. And the um, the Saudis, as you know, keep uh, doing things uh, independent of the United States. When they asked us, asked Saudi Arabia to help reduce the price of oil, they cut production by a million barrels a day. And the, and the I think that joining some of these groups, it's not because they have a vast economic interest in it, although they are looking to the future when they when energy oil will not be able to support them. And MBS has had the, this foresight, so did MBZ, the leaders of, of Saudi Arabia and UAE, for a long time, and others. And they are asserting their, their independence in a sense, but they're looking to their, to their future. And they know that it, it, a lot of it, by the way, is positive towards Israel because they want Israeli technology, they want Israeli involvement, they want to, to be able to deal with it. But I feel that Israel is the permanent... Um, uh, aircraft carrier, as they put it, in the region, it can't go away. But the United States can pull their aircraft carriers in and out, uh, but they can't. And then they look at the payments to, to Iran. They see that Iran gets it for doing nothing but continuing the enrichment, continuing to advance their nuclear program, their ballistic missile program, and yet they pay no price for it. U.S. Even- even though the sanctions, the sanctions are working, and U.S. continues to impose sanctions, the economy of, of Iran is in terrible shape. They lost the value; the value of their currency uh, lost half is is one half in the past two years, let alone all the preceding years. 
and their foreign reserves have increased because we've allowed the export of oil uh, unhampered and especially smuggling Russian oil out. Uh, so we, we don't have a consistency in policy and the Europeans sit on the sidelines and are, 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 have always uh, not acted in, in their own self-interest, let alone the interests of the region. Well, I mean, U.S. foreign policy is just a total mess. I mean, if, if you if you'd spend a day in Washington, you, you, you can meet with officials and give them an entire list of such silly mistakes that they're making, including what you just described. And also, can we call economic sanctions effective when, yeah, they may be destroying and help destroy, you know, a, a, a nation's economy. But when the leaders of that country don't care, right, they don't care what their citizens are going through and they've got plenty of money. There at the top, is that considered a an effective foreign policy decision that these economics, or, or better yet, is that considered a successful use of economic sanctions? Well, it is a successful use because it does have an impact. It does dissuade people. It does uh, put them on notice that it's needed to the to the oligarchs in Russia. It, it, it does have an impact when you can't travel, when you get your your assets uh, seized. Um, those things d- do matter. Uh, and I think, you know, we have to uh, realize it. But but so, for instance, when six billion dollars comes into Iran, as they are getting from supposedly from the deal that uh, that is being made. Uh, and, you know, there's another 10 billion being held by the IMF, another seven billion or so in Iraq. And, you know, we say that we're able to monitor it and it'll go for humanitarian purposes. That's all crap. And not only that, but it's all fungible. It's all money. That, you know, you and the other, but the, but the fact is, the forty percent of the economy is controlled by the supreme leader and the IRGC. So the people are not going to benefit from any of this. The drought is continuing it up the country. Unemployment raging, and now they're arresting people ahead of the anniversary of the hanging of uh, Amini in September. That uh, and they are putting thousands of people who have been put in jail from the demonstrations. They continue to crack down. They reasserted the more the hijab rule. Now they arrested yesterday one of the most popular singers because she said you shouldn't wear the hijab in protest uh, against the against the government's crackdown. And the world doesn't do anything. Where where are all the condemnations? Where's the the reaction? And hopefully people will mark the first anniversary. And right is coming to the United Nations. The president of Iran to speak on the, I think the nineteenth or the twentieth of uh, September. Uh, at the United Nations uh, Council, so at the General Assembly uh, meeting. So, you know, we have to do more. We have to sanction their tankers. We have to be more proactive in the Gulf. We have to show them that the price that will be paid. The truth is that Russia today is not in a position to do much. They can create problems. They can continue to send the remnants of the Wagner Group out. They continue to undermine. But the the fact is that if the, if the West would act in a concerted effort, and I think if the Europeans in particular would, would get some backbone and would stand up for their own interests, because these are her neighbors and all of these cancers are coming to them, uh, as well as America and all of our allies in the region. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NahumSiegel.com, on the NahumSiegel Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Holmline is vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents, major American Jewish organization. Sounds like you believe that uh, Prigozhin was murdered by Putin, or at least he uh, arranged for this aircraft accident. 
Well, arrange is a strong word. <laughs> <laughs> well, the way you just said it, that that if I heard you correctly, you said you know you could you could take out as many members of the Wagner Group as you want. <laughs> but was that the way you put it? I did not put it that way. Oh, you didn't put it that way. Okay. But you could. But you could. <laughs> I, I feel bad that you know I, I'm, I'm laughing when 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 this you know tragedy occurred. But the, uh, the the way the world reacted, automatically giving Putin credit is, I don't know. I found that to be un- credit, but but credit I think is also a positive term for a negative act. Right. But but it doesn't take much to put a bomb on a plane and send it off. I mean, when you control everything right. and easily can do it and the loss of life is not of concern i mean what other lives may have been lost we don't know but one of some of the people on the plane were his associates as well and uh you know but but the but russia you saw the game that went on the the revolt no revolt they they allowed him to get close to moscow they took him out they you know they were supposed to be under arrest and he was supposed to belarus to be to be in confinement there uh or restricted there it's all it's all a sham. So you don't know really what the the truth is about the, what the relationships are and were, and how much um, and, and, you know, and what role each party is playing. Yeah, I hear that. Um, so there was a Republican debate. Some of what I'm about to say was said during the debate. Um, others, uh, other things that I'm going to say regarding this. Uh, Uh, came from reports and interviews that were done. This Vivek Ramaswamy, obviously, is getting a lot of attention, and he has declared uh, three things. Number one, um, it it sounds like he's against the future funding and aid for Israel, although he sort of walked that back a little bit, but you'll tell me what you think of that. Also, he's openly declared, at least in an interview forum, he has openly declared uh, that a USA under his leadership will never take military action against Iran, even if Iran would attack Israel, God forbid. And he also said that he admires the border policy of the state of Israel, which I thought was a funny um, um, addition to the whole conversation regarding what's going on now with the migrant crisis here in the United States. What do you think of Ramaswamy's attitude toward Israel? So, uh, I have not met him, though uh, I'm supposed to. Uh, I think it's it's a sign of a novice, somebody who's inexperienced in, the, in handling some of these situations, and often people will say things, and other candidates have also, in other regards. But, you know, it could well be, I, I can envisage, and I don't know this from any factual basis, that he read some of the articles about cutting aid to Israel, which came out of Israel, and, you know, you, you were had lead stories in, in different publications that he picked one up and it said, you know, cut aid to Israel, um, let Israel stand on its own, whatever. And this is a guy who has visited Israel many times. He didn't just say he admires their border treatment, he admires their towards um, towards uh, crime and and he listed a bunch of things and talked about his various visits uh, to Israel and his admiration for it. He did walk back that comment. First, he denied making it to uh, I forgot who, maybe Hannity or somebody, but but uh, uh, he he denied it and then certainly never again reiterated it and and said that it was a mistake that it was the media that distorted what he originally said. People I know who know him say that he is, in fact, uh, has a sympathy and, and relationship with Israel and with Israelis, that he did business and other things there. Uh, but, 
you yeah, know, I, I assumed it, it, I assumed in the sp- I assumed in the space in which he became a billionaire, it's almost impossible not to do business with people in Israel. Well, it's not not impossible. There are a lot of people doing it in China, Russia, and elsewhere, becoming billionaires without doing business in Israel. But but in the areas that he was involved, you're, you're, there's truth to that. But I think you know the the uh, we often see candidates saying things and then later on saying, I never said anything. Would I say a thing like that? No, I would never say it. And in fact, they do because they're, they're, under, they're in pressure situations. And so we have to look, what is his record? Look back and, and see what else he has said. Is there a consistent pattern of this kind? Uh, and uh, what, but the problem is that it poisons the atmosphere. And then a, the group like the squad or others will pick it up and say, hey, you got a presidential Republican presidential candidate saying cut the aid to Israel and we'll play off of it. And it, it feeds into the Internet and and social media uh, hysteria against Israel, the lies, the distortions, misrepresentations. Yeah, I thought the, I thought the no military action was actually worse. I thought that was, you know, as, as that opinion of Ramaswamy becomes more and more public, I think it just still, as you would say, I think you've told us in the past. Why play that hand? Why even reveal that to the enemy that, that you're eliminating any possibility of military action against Iran? And and it's not for Israel that we need right. to take. We need to do it for the United States right. and to see to see ballistic missiles and these hypersonic missiles that they are releasing. And by the way, you know that the ban on their uh, missile program, the ballistic missile program, ends on October nineteenth, I think this this year. And and you know other sunset clauses will come into effect in the years ahead. In the meantime, they've already violated all of those by the amount of enriched uranium that they have, enough for a couple of bombs, and the the uh, uh, increase the, the new centrifuges they put in the secret facilities, their alliance with Russia, putting up a, a drone factory in Russia. Now they had their their military people were there to talk about ground cooperation uh, with Russia and an expanding relationship. A train left this week from Russia through Iran to Saudi Arabia. The uh, I mean, there are just so many things, and each one in and of itself may not seem to be so dramatic. But when you take the total picture together, you see the, the, the danger to, to us and to our interests and to the diminishing influence that we have. Uh, you mentioned earlier on the, the borders of Israel, both north and south, as Israel gets closer and closer to this uh, total laser protection. And you can, I don't know, you can tell us the realistic timetable for that. Uh, is that going to change things drastically on both borders? I mean, the, the enemy essentially with, uh, I mean, the way it sounds at least, with missiles, shells, rockets, etc., are not going to be able to penetrate the border of Israel uh, once they're fully uh, laser protected. Well, first of all, the enemy has more and more sophisticated equipment. We know that they got the uh, upgrade packages from from Iran in, in uh, into Lebanon, um, and you have 150,000 rockets in the hands of Hezbollah, probably, and tens of thousands in the hands of of uh, of Hamas, uh, which is why Israel has to periodically take them out. And you know, they still continue to try to build the tunnels. They still have they have the technology to. Uh, uh, a lot of stuff. So they they are coming. They have more sophisticated uh, abilities, and you you have to look at where the source is. And and again, it brings us back to Iran's role and and the um, the danger posed. What was your question originally? Well, I wanted to know if you thought once they get to this full laser protection, if it's going to change oh, things so drastically laser, on the borders. Right, right. laser which is, uh, because it it's all 
you know, to look at things in isolation. Right. The, the laser right. story is exaggerated. We are nowhere near a laser weapon. It will take years, I think, till there's a real laser that could take out missiles. There's a lot of difficulty. You know, people don't know when you launch a missile, the laser, it gets distorted because of all the interference in the air, particles and stuff that are not visible to the eye but are there. And uh, I have looked into this issue. There, there are ideas and, and uh, research going on, but it will, it, it's moving ahead. But we'll still take at least the effort that we have an operational weapon. The reason why it's so important is because using iron dome is so expensive that each cost fifty thousand or a hundred thousand. As you know, the Marines just bought three iron dome batteries and a huge stockpile of uh, of missiles uh, for them uh, to protect their American troops. The uh, the iron dome still remains uh, really critical, and and David's uh, sling and and the arrow, the combination of the three gives Israel protection, but they're very expensive uh, launches. And they the the enemy shoots rockets that cost them almost nothing. They can make them out of street signs, uh, the poles from street signs. Uh, but again, as I said, they're becoming more and more sophisticated, larger with guidance systems. So the laser system is still a way off. When it's operational, it'll make a big difference that you could take out multiple launches uh, but supposedly Israel has the ability to take out a hypersonic that, or is in, close to, to having it ready. And, the, the you know, they will meet the challenge, but it takes time, takes technology. And that's why also the drag of energy from in every sector, particularly in high tech and others, by the events in Israel today are so costly. And, yeah. and, and again, you cannot separate the domestic and the international. Could be another reason why the enemy continues to uh, continues to plan attacks against Israel. Because he says it. Read the speeches of Nasrallah. He, he talks about it very clearly. He quotes Israeli newspapers. I mean, it's quite remarkable when you read what he says and how he follows it. Uh, and the, the Iranian newspapers, which I try to keep an eye on, and, and others, they're all taking strength from this and saying, you see, it's the collapse of Israel. That's what we told you would happen. Just, um, And they, they think they can help expedite it. And, and it's another reason why they get encouraged to do cross-border stuff, but also within Israel, the uh, some of the terrorism uh, that, that continues, though they don't need an excuse. Yeah, but they also know with every quote-unquote successful attack, Israel's going to have to spend more money and ramp up whatever security they can... Uh uh, you know they can implement. That's that's. I mean that's obviously what happens every time there's any type of attack. You know Israel has to think what they could do to to shore things up, and all that costs money, which I'm sure does not um, matter to the enemy. If anything, they're happy about it. Uh, speaking of exaggeration, by the way, uh, the Israelis were on that flight that made the emergency landing in Saudi Arabia. I mean, there are people around the world who are like, "Oh, this is no, this is not a coincidence," and this is a, they, you know, they, they they tried to read some significance into it. Was it anything more than a simple emergency landing that got, had the cooperation of Saudi? Arabia? People's imaginations are very good, but it's not, there's no reality. It was uh, every country does. You can't let a plane, I mean, you could, but to let a plane cr- uh, crash. I think it was an opportunity for the prime minister to say something nice to the Saudis. Right. Uh, and they should. I mean, they thanked them for yeah. letting them come in and they were treated uh, nicely when they got there. 
Uh, and there are other positive messages. I mean, we shouldn't think this is all negative. We see countries in South America, Papua New, New Guinea, which is not in South America, but uh, uh, Uruguay and others saying that they're going to move their embassies back or uh, open embassies in Jerusalem. Uh, and I think you're going to see some African countries uh, that are talking about it. Uh, there are uh, there are other positive moves that we shouldn't uh, um, dismiss because it is all important and we can't just look at the negatives. But we are looking at a world where we're seeing a realignment, where we're seeing that are taking place. And, um, and that's why the policy towards Iran is so important. The messages that we send from here are so important. And the, you know, we're so distracted by the... Um, rightfully by the migration problem and that is sapping a lot of the attention and energy uh, of people are we going to have a usa ambassador to israel uh we have an ambassador there an acting ambassador who's capable of handling it uh, whether we will have an appointment it will take at least five months six months till they do all the due diligence and the vote in congress what? i'm not Sure that the Congress is going to be so quick to approve some of the people whose names have been floated. <laughs> uh, but you need the Republicans, you know, to, to get them through. And um, uh, so, and then, you know, the person could serve maybe for a year. And then right. if they change in government, they're out. So it's, it's, uh, it, it does seem that, that there, there is a candidate that everybody believes is very viable or likely, I should say. Um, I'm not sure how he would do in a vote in, in the Senate, but he has been approved before when he was served in a previous administration, Treasury and other positions. Uh, so we'll see what happens. Very interesting. When does Bibi speak at the United Nations? He is likely to speak, I think, on the... Uh, he'll be in the 19th. So he, he's either, the I think, the 20th or 21st, and he's likely to go to Washington... Uh, towards the end of that week so he will stay here and then go home in time to be home for Yom Kippur interesting so Shabbat Shuva he's in the United States maybe and, right maybe and are there still a protest for judicial reform happening in Israel have those, have those toned down at all not at all and they're going to be bigger because you know they're going to go for the third and last element of it which is judicial appointment and um, we'll have to see uh, what happens. Look, it's it's such a controversial and complex issue. We see the demonstrations are sustained. We see there, there is manipulation, but there is also a genuine outcry. And it's not just related to this. I think this became the, the pretext for frustrations to be, and for those who don't did not like the outcome of a democratic election to to protest and to, to to demonstrate the fact to demonstrate with flags and shows that they, you know, they're not demonstrating against the country. But we see even the reports that funding is flowing out or businesses are flowing out. We don't see it actually as, as severe as it sounds on the thing. The, the economic report for the first quarters of this year were, were very positive. And you saw Fitch came out with a positive uh, report. Uh, I hope people will be much more careful what they say and what they do because this, you know, it's, and when people refuse to serve, that that crosses a lot of red lines. When the government doesn't has to take into account the views of the people, and it's the way you do things, not just what you do, and the constant diet. You know, we saw it with Libya, 
how loose lips ships that they when the foreign minister, even if there had been an agreement, as he says now, that they would uh, say that they met. And this the foreign minister of Libya is known for having done some provocative actions in other regards that, that she got suspended before. And uh, now she's in exile. She's been fired. It certainly is going to put a damper on others having meetings. And, and part of the problem is that and leaders there will always say that the Israeli system leaks like a seed. You know, the media doesn't have any control or self-control that uh, public officials, because they're all competing to be the next prime minister or something, uh, will say things both in government and the opposition. It's it's a universal thing, and it's been true of, of governments in the past. I can't tell you how many American officials complained to us or said that they can't share things because they're afraid. And, wow. and Israelis, even Israeli officials, uh, the same. So there has to be much more self-discipline and discipline. And I hope that, that uh, the prime minister says that he's ready to work it out with the opposition. The opposition says, you know, should they negotiate now? First, they say it's not serious and that they their numbers keep going up in the polls. Uh, I think their relief is that they can eventually bring this government down. There are ruptures, uh, as there have been in every government, but I think uh, that he can sustain a, a majority. Uh, they're taking other actions, uh, as you know, so it's not that this is the only issue they're dealing with, but obviously the most visible and the one that internally has caused the most problems. They avoided a, a serious strike by teachers this week with a rather modest uh, increase in pay for them. But they have uh, many other problems that, that Israel has to be able to face. And for that, we need a level of unity. It doesn't mean homogeneity. It doesn't mean everybody has to march in lockstep. It means you have to be sensitive to what is said and how you say it and what you do. How you do it is often as important as what you do. Halavai, yeah. I hope uh, everyone wakes up and uh, and your, your wishes come true and there's a lot more respect coming from both sides. Please, God. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Have a wonderful Shabbos, and we'll speak again next week. God willing, be well. Malcolm Holmline is vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Fridays, weekly updates, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time here at JM in the AM.